Hi, I'm Matt Chinnick, and welcome to episode three of Sounds Like Work, the show where we sit down with professionals from different backgrounds and find out what it's like to work in their industry. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Arpit Cole, an attending physician at Integrated Rehab Consultants. I'm thinking that this will probably take a little bit longer than the average episode length to explain the ins and outs of the medical profession. So today we'll be focusing on what life is like for those people studying to become doctors. We'll also touch a little bit on stress, lifestyle, and give out some advice for those of you that might be thinking about making the journey yourself. Hey, Arpit, thanks for... uh, for joining me. It's good to have you. How you doing? Oh, really great, man. Thank you for having me here. No problem at all. So uh, why don't we start by having you talk a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm a board certified uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation physician. I work in skilled nursing facilities about 30 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. Um, so on a day-to-day basis, I work predominantly with a, a therapy staff at these skilled nursing facilities. So for those who may not be familiar, skilled nursing facilities are basically where a lot of patients go right out after the hospital. So they're not good enough to go home, but they're not sick enough to stay in the hospital. So it's that middle ground where they still need help and there's still nursing staff there. The difference is there's not always a physician there 24-7. So we stop by a few times a week and, you know, say hi to our patients and take care of them and take care of what their needs have. So as I said, I predominantly work in the rehabilitation aspect of it. Uh, so... All of our patients, you know, they get physical therapy and occupational therapy. Physical therapy happens to be, you know, more ambulation, moving around. Occupational therapy is more about getting them, you know, day-to-day activities. They're what we call ADLs. They're activities of daily living. That's a very, very prominent term in my field because it's all about function for us. So, you know, a lot of physicians might focus particularly on, say, an internal medicine physician, just like the name implies. They're all their medicine is internal, meaning the lab work, the little microscopic details, infectious diseases, all those GI, all those things fall under the, uh, the venue of internal medicine. We're more the macroscopic physician. So I work, you know, kind of like more on the musculoskeletal aspects, patients, how they're walking, uh, all those kind of things. So we want to find one of doing that. So patients, you know, who, like I said, may have a certain disease, go to the hospital for a few weeks, a week or two. And then we have them in our facilities and then we wind up getting them better enough, hopefully to go home. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes patients might go into a more of a long-term care or a personal care home or something along those lines. Um, and, our, and my job predominantly is to make sure the patients get to the physical therapy and the occupational therapy. So I'm taking care of a lot of their needs, particularly three big uh, stuff I t- wind up taking care of is uh, prosthetics and orthotics for a lot of patients. So prosthetics for patients who happen to have knee amputations, particularly uh, orthotics for patients who have neurological disease that impair their movement of their hands and their feet. So we wind up getting the new devices for them. Uh, pain management tends to be a big, you know, because pain tends to be really uh, difficult for a lot of patients and really limited how much therapy they can do. That's another thing I wind up doing. And I can do some basic procedures as well. I wind up doing like knee injections, uh, we can do trigger point injections. And that's the three big things I do. A lot of the other stuff is more, uh, unfortunately, like a lot of medicine, modern medicine, it's bureaucratic. So a lot of it, majority of my day is also paperwork. And yeah, so I do spend a, a, probably half my day, I would say I'm doing paperwork and the other half actually seeing patients. You're a first generation American, right? Yeah. 
I remember uh, there's an episode of the Patriot Act on Netflix uh, where Hassan Minaj was talking about these cultural pressures that a lot of first generation Americans get from their families to um, get these higher level professions yeah. and these sort of, you know, higher status jobs in society. Um, and here you are as a first generation American physician. Uh, is that a real thing then? Did you experience anything like that? when you are considering what to do? Yes. Uh, in a more complicated way than uh, some reasons would be like, oh, of course they did. So, uh, you know, we came in 1990. I was six at the time. Uh, my younger brother, who's six years younger, was about like two or three months. He was super young. He was like literally a bit, like an infant. Uh, we settled in Queens in New York City. You know, we sent, I went to high school in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, you know, I went to school upstate New York. You know, I was a New York kid raised through and through. So initially when I went to undergrad, my mom did, was very traditional. She's like, you have to be a doctor, but you can't go more than, you know, 50 feet from home. <laughs> you have to be, I have to be watching you. I'm like, don't work like that. And I was a very stubborn child. I still am a stubborn man. It's, it's kind of evolved, but I'm still, I was, that stubbornness I'm sure I got from her. Ha <laughs> ha. She didn't expect that one. Yeah. So, uh. We got, like, she didn't want me to go, you know, I went to undergrad about three hours of four hours north of, uh, of New York City. And I got there and she's like, you have to do medicine because like, that's the best thing. And I was like, I'm never going to do medicine because she wants me to do medicine. So initially I chose biochemistry and that was a rough major. That was like, you know, we took our biochem and calc my first semester. <laughs> uh, and it, you know, you got there first. It's the first time I've experienced freedom and I went wild and I had fun with it. And I thought honestly, I was like, maybe I'll do like get a PhD or something like that. Just because that would be pretty cool. It's genetics was like the new up and coming thing at the time. And I was like, maybe I'll do that. After a while, I was like, you know what? I saw a lot of my friends who were like studying for like medical school. I was like, yeah, this seems pretty cool. Let me do rotations. Let me do, correction, let me do sh uh, shadowing. Shadowing is basically, you know, you go, you follow a doc around for a day or two. And there was a hospital system there I went to and it was a, amazing uh, experience and i really loved the people experience i loved interacting like you know you got some tough tough cases and i was like man this is amazing I, this is absolutely amazing i'm gonna do this but like you know uh, my family had a lot of like you know like financial issues and they couldn't do this and so we at a certain point they were like you know you should like it's gonna take a long time and you should come back and you should do this like if you can do this like at a certain point like you know i didn't get in the first time and like we did it again. That's why I wanted to doing the master's and the postback. And you have to be, you, you have this fight the world mentality. You know, some people got in from straight from undergrad. Some people, uh, a lot of, a lot of, I guess, a lot of my colleagues in medical school had this very atraditional. Like I had, uh, um, I'm sure they don't mind me talking because they, they were inspirational. I had colleagues, you know, who had families, who had children, young children. Some of them had multiple young children. Some of them were, you know, one, one gentleman was an EMT and he came back and he wound up becoming an emergency room physician. I had a gentleman who was one of close friends in, in medical school and he was a uh, Pakistani in origin and uh, he uh, was an engineer. He, uh, I think he was a biomedical engineer. <laughs> and um, he I said, so what, he was, I actually interviewed with him the day of in the medical school interview. He actually like fixed my collar. He says, didn't want you to mess up there, buddy. And then like, I saw him on orientation. I'm like, you fixed my color. You made me get in here. <laughs> so we used to study together. Like, you know, I saw this man for like every single day of the week for like two years straight. And he had his first son when he was about to have his first son. 
and uh, he we were in a like circle and like, no, tell me something cool about yourself or whatever. And he's like, uh, he goes he's like, yeah, I just had my first child. You know, it was the most amazing experience. And I go next. I'm like, I like books. What, <laughs> what do you want? Like, look at this man. He's had a baby. What do you want from me? And I get there and like these cultural, they, they all had cultural expectations. Like, you know, like whether it be, there were, he was Pakistani, he was South Asian as well. But he went this route, engineering route, and he wanted coming to medicine. And I had these gentlemen who had very different backgrounds and like all this kind of stuff. And like you have all these kind of things. And they expect, you know, if you're a South Asian, there's a very strong cultural push to do medicine. At a certain point, people who really get in and really enjoy it, you want to be there. You truly want to be there. We'll be right back. So I didn't know how this, I had no idea how this system was set up. I, for me, I can give you my, my interpretation before we talked right sure. now was, you know, you decide you want to go to med school. I don't really know what med school is, <laughs> but I know that you go there for a long time before you can be cut, come out of the other end and be a medical professional. So what it sounds like then is that the first four years of, would it still be, is med school like a catch-all for all of these steps or is med school like a specific no. part of this step? So I'll, I'll break it down my process. of how, So I went to school upstate New York to undergrad school. And um, that's just like a regular college experience. Regular college you, experience. So I was a biochemistry major. That was a terrible mistake. I was terrible at biochemistry. <laughs> I should have shown history. So that being said, so you choose any medical school. Uh, for applying to medical school, you have to have prerequisites. You have to take biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, uh, English, and a calculus, I believe. Uh, so when when you graduate, you take the medical school or college admissions test, the MCAT. So when I took it, it uh, for people who are young out there who are listening, I took it on paper. It was. <laughs> and Could you explain for our listeners what sure. paper is and how oh, it works oh, and how man. you turn it on and off? They took dead trees and they printed. Black ink on them. It was the craziest thing, guys. You should have seen it back in the day. <laughs> so I, I was actually one of the last paper tests, actually. So I took the eight-hour examination in like a lecture hall with these uncomfortable seats, and we sat down for like eight hours and took it. Okay. So pretty much a normal college situation up until now, but the topics you've been studying have been chosen to prep you for medical school. Uh, we're now at the point where we're about to start med school. Have you also completed your master's? At this stage, when I when I started medical school, I had finished my master's in arts and biology and under post back from Drexel University in Philadelphia. Right. Okay. So now we're into dreaded medical school. Oh yeah. What does that look like? The first two years, it is it is really brutal, and it, it was really really truly humbling experience, it, because you know I would say I worked really hard in the undergrad and the masters and all this stuff. And I did well. But when you get to medical school and you're like, yeah, I got it. I finally made it, did it. I got here. And then you're put in a room with a hundred people and everyone's story is as amazing, if not more as yours. And it is the most humbling experience because everybody there has done remarkable things to get to that, get their foot into that door. They've done some, they each have a story that, you know, you can listen to for hours and they can have something to tell you about how they got there. And you kind of do these tests and you said, man, I'm working, you're working, you're working, you know, I'm studying 
probably, I used to get up around like eight o'clock every day, work until eight or nine every night. Your back's breaking, you don't have time to work out, you're not eating right, you know, you're going to sheets and picking up whatever the hell you can. You, 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 you know, there's no time to party, nothing like that. This is seven days a week. That's all you're doing for two days, two years straight, nonstop. And then you, you do it and sometimes you get average in the test. You get below average in the test. And it was soul crushing. And you're like, I, what I, I did this. I, I did this. I did all the work. What happened? And I think it, it was like four or six months into the process. Uh, they had like some seniors come down and like just talk to us and said, hey, if you guys are doing average, you belong here. Do you understand who you're around? Do you understand who these people are around you? Like they're all in a similar boat. Seems remarkable. You all are remarkable individuals and you are working here asses off to get here uh, to get here and to stay here if you are these tests are not easy they're giving you these are remarkably hard tests like they're pulling out lines from like 500 page like science textbooks and said what did that say you know you, your memory has to be like steel traps and all these people like could regurgitate lines off and say oh that's on 64 and it was i i was i was not that <laughs> i was not that individual i was okay but i had classmates who could do that i was like holy cow how'd you do that Okay, year one and year two, lots of study. How about three and four? More practical stuff? Third and fourth year are traditionally rotation years. So every month or so, you spend time in internal medicine, in uh, OB-GYN, uh, surgery. And then fourth year is basically um, what we call the match. So all medical students in the United States go through the match for the most part. So if you're a graduate of a U.S. medical school, you go through an application process and you say, I interviewed at these places, I apply to this central application process, and then I apply to, say, 10 places, okay? I apply to 10 places, I interviewed at these 10 places, and at the end of the day, you have to submit what we call a rank list, and it's um, 1 to 10, okay? And say, I really liked X, Y, and Z, and it's... One of the biggest decisions in my life, hands down, one of the biggest decisions in my life. I had soul searching conversations with myself, of course, and like my brother and, you know, like I told my close friends and I, I, I kind of got an idea of like what my top three should be. It, it's it's kind of like the draft for like for every like, you know, like for, for uh, every medical student in the country. And in the middle of March, uh, every student on this on a Monday finds out if they matched and on a Friday, they find out where they matched. Uh, and this is matching you to a academic institution for what, a residency? Correct. So residencies are actually part of all, mostly all tertiary centers, like I think all tertiary centers, all the big academic centers have a residency and they're various residencies. Uh, the bigger ones are like surgery and internal medicine because they're, you know, they're the bread and butter. Most patients come in for that. Then they can have things, uh, specialties like psych, OB-GYN, orthopedic surgery, anesthesia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. My field of physical medicine rehab, PM&R. Uh, so going back to the original uh, match thing, so like in the middle of March, you know, you find out it's a big party, everybody get, enjoys it. So these are two academic centers. So it's for residencies. So to keep it real simple, you, most residencies are three to five years. For internal medicine, it's three years. Mine was one year for what we call an intern year. And you have a choice of doing an internal medicine or surgery. And then you do three more years after that because it's, it's a specialty field for me. Anesthesia and some of these other fields are uh, similar as well. It will always work in the applicant's favor. 
It'll always try to match you to your highest ranked choice. But it's this absolutely crazy thing. And like, you know, it's this very nerve wracking thing. Let me tell you that. And it's, it's, it's really cool to see like literally like all of, you know, your undergrad friends who often we were in the same classes together. We applied. We took what we called them uh, MCATs together, medical college admissions test in undergrad. And, you know, we want a lot of us wound up taking that. Uh, during our junior and senior in college and then uh, their steps together and like, you know, residency uh, or uh, correction or uh, medical schoolmates. And then everybody finds out. So literally it's like, you know, you, you look at your Facebook and Instagram feed and it's like 800 people just like, I matched here, I did this and I'm going here. And it's really cool party atmosphere and seeing like, you know, for some people, eight, 10 years worth of work pay off. And it's absolutely you know, it, it's one of those beautiful like uh, days in my life, and it's such a strong memories. You know, seeing everybody on match day, and like, of course, we went on to parties <laughs> afterwards. There's parties everywhere, depending on what city you happen to be in, and like, yeah, it, it's just it, that aspect of you know having that hard work pay off, and really seeing it, and really seeing it, and seeing your colleagues match also. It, it was it was one of the greatest like days of, if you're of my life, and I'm sure for a lot of my colleagues' lives too. So not to make light of something that you literally just described as one of the greatest days of your life, but you realize this uh, kind of sounds like med school Tinder, right? Oh, 100 percent. I'm sure Tinder got the idea from us. They were like, "Wait a minute, this might but, work." But you're curing diseases instead of getting them. That's the difference. That is the difference. <laughs> mm, that's a good point. All right. So now we're all matched up for residency and uh that gets going what's that like um it is an experience that i'm very grateful for but man would i not repeat <laughs> it was tough it was tough because in, in the same way that your last your last um you know med school experience was tough or is it is it a different very different challenge? tough very different medical school was mentally just mentally breaking because you're constantly being tested your number your rank this your that this is sheer physical like oh my god like what is going on because being in new york part of the nyu system we have uh, some place called bellevue and bellevue is the oldest public hospital in the country uh the original building is gone but like they still like you know anything happens in terms of big trauma in, in manhattan goes to bellevue and it's it's a completely resident run and oh my goodness it gets super chaotic to say the least you know like uh but like i said it's part of the training it, it is very like you're working sometimes 80 hours a week i remember uh when we were pgy2s the um ac jimmy the american uh, college of graduate medical education they had uh recently passed the law saying that okay interns can't do 24-hour shifts because we were working too much. They were working 100 hours a week. Some of these guys were working 120 hours, some insane hours. But after PGY2, you can do 24-hour calls. So basically, you get it in the morning, wherever it happens to be. You're there like 7, 7.30. You take what we call sign-out. Basically, the overnight resident tells you, hey, this is what happened. This didn't happen. Follow up on this. Tell the team that. So you're there. You do your full work day. At 5, 6 o'clock, you know, your team signs out to you, and you're left by yourself and say, okay, take care. This is 60 people. You're responsible overnight. If you're lucky, you get an hour, two, three sleep. They got a little call room for you. Maybe four if it's a real good night. Uh, if you're not lucky, <laughs> you're not getting sleep. I, I remember like uh, at one time they gave me a Thursday 24-hour call. I went home Friday. I slept. Like basically I got home at like 11 to 12 o'clock. I slept for like six, seven hours. Woke up and I had another 24-hour call the next day. 
And like whenever the, <laughs> I was done with those two calls, I didn't, I was like, okay, guys, I can't. Like you're just you're a walking zombie. And it's it's such a demand. Your body can only handle so much after that. Being up for like 30 hours, and going to sleep for like eight hours, being up again for like 30 hours, and that's where NYU really because I was able to see so many of these because you're in New York, you have volume. And I was able to see so many of these rare cases that now like, you know, a lot of these, my colleagues will see these stuff and I'm like, oh, they're like worried. I'm like, man, you, you, you do get to, like I said, it's something I could never replace and I'm thankful for the experience, but you don't want to repeat it twice is, is what I'm saying. So you were, uh, Started off where you probably had the same kind of challenges that, that everybody else that goes to college had, um, sort of, you know, lots of, lots of studying, you know, a couple of late nights, um, studying for tests, making sure you got decent grades so you could progress onto the next step. Uh, it sounds like med school was, um, a lot more intense in terms of the, the studying. Uh, it went from, you know, instead of, instead of being able to do well in a test it was like doing okay was was quite good just because of the people you're around and the scope of the content changed a lot uh and then moving into your, your residency is that the right term yep at, at nyu it now moved into it now became it now became more about physical demands of being able to work really long hours and being able to put into practice all the things you've learned over and over again and then also being able to spot those times where things were a little bit atypical and and then being able to remember the the those smaller pieces of your training in order to, to help out a particular case do you think that uh you were well prepared from the previous steps for for the next step like when you were at your college level did they do an okay job of prepping you for med school and when you're at med school did they do an okay job of prepping you for your residency because it sounds like they were all very di different challenges and if you were thrown into that without any preparation or knowledge of what was coming it could be a big shock to the system that was difficult to adjust to yes and no yes in the sense that like you know the classes were available but they really there is a big disconnect because every medical school has their own curriculum they're always experimenting and it really is based on the big test, like, you know, our steps that we take the one and two and like three after we graduate medical school. And after you pass those three steps, you're, you're a certified physician. You can do whatever you need. Board certification is a different thing. That being said, undergraduate schools teach you those four classes. That's you have to take like organic chemistry, physics, biology, chemistry. Uh, I'm sure there are more requirements at this point since I've, since I've left. I know they've added like psychology and social, sociology, et cetera. So some of these uh, examinations, and they're all, of course, computer-based and what have you. I had some of my like medical school classmates who said I worked harder in undergrad than I do here, because it was their schools. Like they, their schools more more rigorous. I went to a pretty like I was to school upstate, uh, SUNY Binghamton. I had a really great education, but they said I did more work over there. Or I, some of them said, heck, I did more work in high school. I'm like, where did you go to high school? Some of these guys went and gals went to like some private like schools and like, you know, like, and they were like rigorous. They like, they worked. I'm like, it really truly depends. And it's a very, everyone's has a different path to where they get to. And some of them are better prepared. At the end of the day, you got to do what you have to do. And you have to say, I feel comfortable in the knowledge I know. 
Because a test is not necessarily taking care of a patient. A test is saying, did you remember that line? No, you didn't remember that line. Somebody can remember that line real quick. Somebody can have some serendipity and say, oh, I, I just remember that paragraph and that's it. And I'm good to go. Because when you're dealing with hundreds of pages of, uh, of you know, dense uh, science, uh, science like it's these terms and what have you, it's learning a new language. One common theme that must be here for kind of every step is, you know, must have had a huge amount of pressure to deal with the entire way through. That makes me think about mental health. Uh, is that something that was talked about at all? They, they used to have like, you know, resident wellness camps and stuff like that because it's, as I mentioned, it's very highly stressful. So, you know, burnout, burnout was a very, very big thing. And it's in modern, in modern medicine, particularly the last few years, it's become a huge thing because burnout, you know, has led to all kinds of, you know, uh, mental anxiety, uh, depression, and all, all kinds of things. You know, I, I definitely experienced it in the first two years of uh, medical school. You know, I was able to t talk to individuals, uh, professionals, and, you know, uh, get uh, taken care of. But residency, especially physically, you know, that how demanding and mentally how demanding it, it took a lot of toll. And it's, you know, we're now as, as uh, um, a field... As medicine, you know, ironically enough, we are now just coming to cope with, you know, how much depression and anxiety exists in our residents. And they are our front line. Without residents, like I said, the, the truly backbone of healthcare in the United States will not exist. You, you got to have those guys working basically slave hours. Like they need to pay them better because we didn't get paid that much. I mean, it's too late for me, but hell, if they're going to pay them double or triple, whatever they need to, they need to do that. But as I said, there's a whole complicated, it's federally regulated and what have you. That being said, they would give us like, you know, like pizza slices and people from like the psych or the family practice would come in, talk to us and like, how you're, how you doing? And like, give us like, you know, like little fun scenarios and stuff to do. They tried, um, you know, they try to deal with certain uh, things that was, you know, residents were like, we're not happy with the situation. And, you know, the STM were like, they got really sensitive to it. And they're like, how can we help you? And, you know, what can we do? What about after all of this is done? The field's progressing pretty quickly all the time, right? And surely you have to continue learning for the rest of your career. So how do you do that? Yeah, so as physicians, you know, we have to have something called continuing medical education, CME. So every year we have to have X amount. Now I think my particular field, PM&R, is moving to a more longitudinal type of assessment where it's basically a you read a couple of articles and they kind of give you little quizlet, quizlets at the end and say, hey, did you read it? Okay, you understood it? Cool. Now you get like one and a half CME and you have to have an X amount per year and that maintains your certification. They used to have like board certification, recertifications every 10 years or so. I think they're now starting to move away from that because a lot of physicians were like, this is... this is." Well, how do you fit that? I can see why, because how do you fit that time in for study? I mean, I'm sure that it's not a case of just taking, they just say, hey, take a day off every week for six months or whatever to learn new so, stuff. How does that work? Thankfully, the you know, technology is uh, beneficial in that too, because now I can get articles straight to my you know, computer, my iPad, and I can read an article. And I, I, because I said, as physicians, we are data consuming machines. Yeah, it, it's, it is part of the training. And now when you get CME, it's like, yeah. It, it, because we already have a base and we know the language and now that say, okay, we're just changing this around a little bit. 
it's it's a really easy actually for the most part to kind of and are you expected to do that in your own time or is there yep. a, okay so there's no oh, yeah. dedicated time in your nope. regular week where you're allowed to continuing education is part of i mean certain academic physicians if you're working for a big academics they'll they'll set aside time for you to go to a conference they'll offer reimbursement and stuff like that they're like hey you have like you know like five days or a week or whatever it is to go to these conferences you know and then you know brush up on your skill sets this is very important actually more so important for physicians who are actively performing procedures because they have to new procedures come up and the new procedures oh my goodness and they're still you know being data being published you know back this off or or lack thereof but they have to fly out to you know to like places like well they go to miami and las vegas and all these not exactly <laughs> sad places you know they go they have, but they go out they they spend a day two three four and they learn brand new techniques and they'll they have to like stay on top of their um, game quote unquote to, to kind of stay relevant after they've learned a technique at a conference or something like that or read about it, uh, how does that get implemented in the system at the hospital? Is it just a case of them coming back to the hospital and saying, hey, I know a new way of doing this now, so I'm just going to do it like that? Or do individual hospitals have to uh, agree somewhere higher up the chain to say, okay, well, now we're going to do things a bit differently as a group or just this one doctor is going to do something differently until everybody else is... I truly don't or? know how it works in academic centers, and I'm sure it's local. I'm sure there's certain administrators or, you know, heads of departments who said, you have to run everything by me. And certain departments are like, you know what, we trust you, do your thing, just give us a heads up what you're doing, so and make sure we have the proper procedures, uh, equipment, all that kind of stuff, safety, everything's there. Uh, a lot of my, actually almost all my friends who did international work in private settings, so they're they're responding to their senior partners and themselves. So they can they they can do things much more rapidly, much much more rapidly than academic center can. And academic centers in that regard tend to be a little behind the times on the more more modern techniques because they of course they're more data driven all that stuff, which is very important. Uh, but private centers can experiment a little bit more and they, they can you know explain obviously they explain the risk and benefits to their patients and they're not going to do anything that's not like truly FDA approved or or what have you or, or or at least like you know safe and they they're gonna say hey this is this is what we're doing you know you want to proceed with this yes um academic centers like I said I, I haven't experienced that aspect of what but I'm sure it's more local politically because it they're not a lot of a lot of them you know it's a handful when it's a handful of core individuals who can perform these procedures and they're usually doing it maybe one or two days a week uh, you kind of they like the administrator might be like, "Hey, you're running past me for everything," especially if you're trying something new that might be high risk. We'll be right back. It sounds like if I'm a doctor that's working in a completely different specialty to you, I could have a very different experience day to day. Once I've gone past my college and my med school and maybe even my residency, and I'm working uh, in a job now. If I'm a surgeon, obviously there's going to be some very different things that I'll be doing than what you're doing. Um, but how does lifestyle factor into it? Uh, is that something that when you were looking at the path that you would take in medicine, um, you considered in terms of how much time is this going to require outside of regular working hours? And, um, you know, how much stress is this going to have? Because I'm sure there's stress 
for for everybody in in every path in in medicine to some degree but it probably varies i'm assuming is that yeah. correct 100 percent. lifestyle was a big 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 decision for me so you know i spoke about earlier you know in uh you know, third and fourth year of medical school, I was doing surgery rotations. And I was like, these guys are getting up at like, what time? No way. I am not a morning person. You know, I said, I knew a couple of things I wanted. I wanted a more or less, you know, 40, 60 hour, 60 hour work week. I, I was okay with that. You know, like I was able to do that. And, you know, I try to say, hopefully no calls if I don't, if I can avoid it. Uh, that kind of stuff. Calls being like, you know, you're every, even if you're an attending, you have like maybe every third weekend, fourth weekend, second weekend, whatever it is, you're on call. So if anything emergency happens, you come in. So meaning you can't go out and have a nice evening out or you can't go on vacation for out of town for a three day weekend or something like that, which I was like, okay, at a certain point, I know I'm going to be working hard and I'm okay with that, but I want to pay off where I can say, okay, take it back. And PM&R really gave me a lot of those options. So my lifestyle is, uh, Monday to Friday. I don't do weekends unless there's a new patients coming in or, or, or I skipped a day because I was you know, off, out of town, not feeling well, et cetera. So I have a lot of flexibility. Because they're skilled nursing patients, they're more or less always there. I wind up seeing on most days like 30 to 40 patients, give or take. And I know a lot of my colleagues who are in pain and in the other fields, they see way more than that. And they're, they're working a lot more than that. Um, I didn't want that. Is there more competition for those uh, nine to five sort of positions that yes. you have because I, of that? Absolutely. So things like dermatology particularly is one of the most competitive fields, hands down, because it is very lucrative because they can see a lot of patients uh, and it is more or less, there's no dermatological emergency. You have different things like nowadays, millennial physicians particularly, are coming up and saying, lifestyle is very important to us. We don't want to do this anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. So it's been a very interesting cultural thing where a couple of things are happening. So patients, uh, I'm sorry, uh, physicians who are internal medicine, I've noticed a lot of them become something called hospitalists. So they basically work at a hospital. They basically work seven days on, 12-hour shifts, and then uh, somebody else takes over at nighttime, and they're done. They're done for a week. So they're off for a week. So they're basically working six months a, uh, a year, effectively. Or they can do two weeks on, two weeks off. Or they can do longer shifts or they can do other things on the side. You know, so it gives them a lot of flexibility. Or, you know, docs who work in urgent cares. You know, that's a pretty steady gig. You know, you can have multiple docs coming in. And they work because they're able to see a lot of patients. A lot of patients come to them. And they're not as critical and, like, you know, unfortunately, not, uh, fortunately, and not as time-consuming as the emergency room. But even emergency room docs, they're also shift workers. They have X amount of shifts depending on what they do. And a lot of physicians are actually, you know, the day of, you know, a physician owning his own practice, uh, in, in, you know, he or she having one or two partners and, you know, having thousands of patients are gone, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately. The autonomy is gone because that hospital systems came in. They said, we can do this better than you. Recently, I would say in the last like maybe five, 10 years that physicians are realizing, hold on a second. And they're saying, we'll become a salaried employee, but you have to give us these benefits. We want this. So they're negotiating tougher. Or, and or, multiple physicians, particularly I've seen large physicians like orthopedic surgeons form these large groups or emergency service physicians or what have you. They form these large groups and they kind of unionize themselves. Sounds just like a union, yeah.
I work for a company and I'm an independent contractor. My company's based out of Chicago. It was founded by a physician. I think he's a couple of years older than me, maybe in his early 40s, I forget. Uh, sorry, Mish. <laughs> uh, he's a CEO and they have expanded rapidly because they, they were like, hey, we don't want you, you know, you know we're not gonna give, make, you, make you do this. We're not gonna make you do that. You see as many patients that you feel comfortable with, say, that you say you can provide the best care with and we're gonna focus on that goal. So that's a whole thing. So for me, my, my lifestyle in my field, love it. And that's where the conversation around mental health and burnout comes in. And it sounds like at least now you, you can use that form of unionization, for lack of a better word, in order to help uh, not only give you the lifestyle that, that you're looking for that's a little bit closer to a regular nine to five, but also, you know, prevent burnout and keep you in better shape mentally. Longevity is going to be a big factor because I think in our, uh, particularly millennials, you know, people who are 45, 50 or less, gen, whatever, they, they're realizing, hey, we are, we can't do this anymore. We don't want to, we don't want to do this. Why? Because they see our friends who went into finance, who went into tech, especially. My goodness, in tech, you guys have disrupted truly. You know, like they're like, hey, look, like we're literally looking at the across the field. I'm like, look at the, what, they, what are they doing? How come we can't have that? That's become the new norm because we see our colleagues and they go over there and they see, oh, man, look at my friend. He went to, you know, he did this and then he got his master's in that. And then he's doing this and like he can work from home like four days a week or he can work from he can do this. We should obviously our patients. We have to go see our patients. Make the like, patients come to your house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, maybe not. <laughs> but uh, that that being said, uh, you know, we want we gonna we're like how do we find that balance? You know, how do we, how do we find like this? Like you know, these companies are taking care of them. You can see they care for their employees and they want them to do this, and they're offering them a lot more. And we see this archaic system where where hospital systems, you know, are are large behemoths. They they often work on a tradition and as much as you know as anything. Um, so I think that the lifestyle is going to become more important. My like the how I chose my lifestyle become very important uh, for more and more younger physicians, especially as time goes along, because we're going to realize no, this is not going to fly. This has always felt to me like something that you have to commit to very early on in your life in order to to be successful, and for a few reasons takes a really long time to get out the end of the funnel um, and get a job and, and start to work in the industry and in, in, in the field and to be successful. Um, it costs a lot of money and generally speaking, you only want to accumulate loans once in your life when it comes to education, if possible, or that's not always the case. Um, I guess the combination of those two things uh, for me means that it's something that you have to do as your first career and it's not very accessible for somebody coming in with a previous career. Now, in another conversation, you mentioned that you did have some people in your cohort that had come in from somewhat related fields. Um, they weren't initially thinking about getting started in medicine. How is there a point do you think in somebody's life in terms of age or if they've you know been working in a career for that's totally unrelated to medicine where you just have to say to yourself this isn't something that you're going to be able to do or do you think that there are pathways in for pretty much anybody 
depend uh, regardless of where they are at. I, I I'm pretty sure there were some individuals in our class who were definitely old, older, if I may use that. Like they were retired nurses. They worked in this kind of fields, and, and by the time they were done, they were probably close to 40, 50. You know that that's med- with medical school, not residency, not re- just residency. So they had more to go on that, and I could see they put in as much work and passion, if not more, because they actively chose that. You know, like when you're younger, you can kind of stumble along blindly to this field, like fall into fall it, fall into right? it more or less, because your colleagues are doing it, your friends are doing it, all that kind of stuff, and like everyone's working hard and hurrah. When you're that age and people are like looking at you like, are you crazy? But the fact they overcame, like looking back at it now, you know, like if I decided to do a career shift now, a lot of people are like, what? Especially like, you know, maybe physicians, but like even doing a lot of people doing a career shift in like 40, 45, especially when they're successful, all these people were having a pretty comfortable lifestyle prior to, and they chose to go back because at a certain point, it's about the passion. And I said it again, I'll say it again. It's about the passion. This is a field you truly do have to love. It is not an easy field. It is a field that demands a lot of you. It is. A, it will demand multiple steps of you. Anything that you love and that you have not put out sweat, blood, and tears for is not worth it. And these individuals truly did because they knew what they wanted and they appreciated it. And I'm sure, like I said, now looking back at it, being you know far, farther removed from medical school and looking back at what they did, I have more respect for them now, because they started this path when they were for, in their forties and later, even later, and they had to you know their families, their friends group, and their just you know social groups had to be like, what are you doing? You know how long this is going to take? I'm sure they would have had that conversation a dozen times, and they had to spearhead it and say, this is what I want. And I know this, and I'm the stumbles they had to do to, to get up every step of the way, you know, two steps back, one step forward, maybe a leap or two forward every so often. Man, it, it's, it's, it's tough. So it's never too late to do whatever you want to do. But there is a price to pay, and they paid it, and I'm sure they're damn happy at this point. And I can, I can say to people who are thinking about this, say, hey, you better love this man. You, you, you truly, truly should love this because if you think that, oh, it's for the money, mm-mm. go to, go to finance, you know, start, be a venture capitalist, you know, go into tech. There's, it's going to be a faster way to get there. You'll work hard there too, but this is a different, different, it is a long road. You know, after your undergrad, you still have your four years of medical school. Then you have your residency. If you decide to do a fellowship, there's like, um, retrospectively, that is that is the biggest advice I can give to people. If they're looking at it right now and you're in undergrad or you're in a master's and thinking about it, make sure you rotate it. Make sure this is what you want because you're going to fail a lot. You're going to fail a lot. And it's okay because every one of those things should be a learning opportunity. Every single one of those things should be something you learn from. Because failure is good. You want to fail because you have to realize that, you know, now, now you know you get those silly questions on, tell me about your strengths and weaknesses on interviews, right? Man, I love that question now. Because I used to think, like, that's is silly. Like, I'm going to make some stuff to tell, like, oh, yeah, I'm good at blah, blah, blah. I work too hard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can give a whole 
you know, I can go on a whole pathway now about my weaknesses because it's amazing and I'd love to know what I have to improve and I will always be improving on. You come out of the interview and you're like, oh, I spent 35 <laughs> minutes talking about how bad I am. And that's true. Then they were like, we've heard enough. And we you're like, enough. is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's true. Like, you, know, you, you may have this, you may have, you say, I'm, I don't have that. You may not fix it, acknowledge it, fix it, acknowledge it. Say, how can make this my strength? If you've done shattering and you truly know this is what you want, you can do this. You can do this. Well, I've always had a lot of respect for people that have worked in your field. Um, I'm really glad that there are people around that are willing to put in the amount of effort that is required to 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 see all of this stuff through. I know that it's uh, must be incredibly challenging on many different levels for somebody that that is young and as you as you've mentioned before for people that decide to come into uh medicine later on in life as well uh it's different but equally is is impressive that they decide to put themselves through the process so uh this has been incredibly interesting to to listen to and i appreciate you taking some time to shed some light on what life has been like so far and Thanks for doing what you do. Thank you so much for having me here, man. I really appreciate it.